I'm Raji Sohal. On the podcast today, we talked about Meta, that's Facebook's parent company. It's not quite what it said it was going to be. And daylight saving time ended. We've gained an hour, but now how do we fix our sleep issues? And we talked about the BC budget. There is a big surplus there, and it's made up of your tax dollars. So should it sit there just in case it's required for a rainy day? Or should that money be reinvested into programs like housing and education? The BC Liberal finance critic Peter Millobar joined us for a breakdown of the numbers and policies. Let's talk about the province's budget, shall we? A new report says BC has too much fiscal padding in the budget. And the report also says that money needs to be spent. It shows that most provinces have unallocated funds in their budgets that could be used to make public investments and social programs. For BC, that looks like $6 billion socked away in contingencies and rainy day funds. Joining me now to talk about this is Peter Millobar, the BC Liberals finance critic. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, with the the provincial budgets, the big question is always how much to invest, right? In programs, in prevention, and solutions, how much to invest. So how does the BC budget strike you? Well, I think it's important to always strike a, a balance, so to speak, uh, with, the, with the priority of making sure uh, public programs are are well funded, but also making sure that you're not uh, bringing upon a, uh, an unrealistic and unsustainable uh, tax burden. So in BC's case right now, uh, this NDP government is now collecting $12 billion, with a B, dollars more in taxation every single year uh, than when they first took office in 2017. So at a certain point, we also have to ask ourselves what is sustainable in terms of a, an ongoing uh, funding source. Yeah, I think a lot of residents in BC will hear that number and they're immediately thinking about the level that they get taxed at and and wondering where is the balance there. But then there is the matter of rainy day funds and some would take that actually quite literally and say, yeah, rainy day funds with, you know, flooding in our province uh, being as unpredictable as it is. And who knows what's ahead of us with winter weather challenges. Some say that those funds should be reserved for literally those rainy days. Well, we've always had the ability uh, to to, uh, spend what is needed when it comes to natural disasters, usually in the aftermath. Uh, the federal government comes in as well. Um, and, and we've had fire and floods and, and extreme weather, obviously not to the, the back-to-back-to-back degree that we've seen uh, in the last few years. But, uh, you know, this fire season, thankfully, uh, did not uh, tap into those dollars the same. And, you know, I have a municipal background in Kamloops, and, and uh, we have to guess every year what we're going to do with snow removal. It doesn't mean we stop funding once that fund is done. There's other governmental reserves you can dip into. So it's really about finding that, that balance, I think, is what this report is saying. And if, if you're going to sit on the money, um, why, are, why are some of these programs leaving left uh, wanting for money? And, and if you're not spending it on those programs, why are you taxing people um, in the first place for some of these uh, these types of uh, revenue streams. So let's talk priorities then. What do you think it should be going towards right now? Well, I think the big concern uh, we have as the BC Liberals right now is, is what we're seeing is that the government is, is making huge spending announcements um, and not actually getting a whole lot of result uh, uh, for that spend. And so again, it's it's not always just about the dollars being spent. 
It's about um, are you getting a good outcome with healthcare? Are you actually seeing improvements on housing and affordability? Um, are, are people, uh, you know, we're seeing a great debate about this clawback of autism funding. Um, um, why are we not just making sure that those other kids that need help uh, get the help without clawing back funding to autism as well? And so that is kind of that, that ongoing whipsaw you're always going to see with government. But when you, when you have, uh, you know, $12 billion more in taxation coming in, and you're not uh, helping those people out and you're seeing, um, you know, what's happening with inflation and people's own household budgets who are paying those taxes, um, you know, government needs to, to start readjusting kind of how they're, they're doing things. But aren't some of these deals being made now, these deals for investment, like the deal for doctors, for example, we heard about that many, many months ago, just being in negotiation levels. Now the deal's out there in the public and it's looking like it's going to cost a lot, uh, up to $10 billion. Um, So do you have any faith that the government is going to be coming through on these deals that will use those investments? Well, I think actually that's probably the best example and the most current one to use of what I was just talking about. Uh, so we have a deal. Um, everyone agrees it's going to cost a lot of money. No one's entirely sure exactly how much, but but it will be substantial. Um, but the key piece to all of this is that the government has refused uh, within that new system to put in any any uh, system of measuring success or failure of of attaching what would a what would a successful new program with new spending for doctors look like for British Columbia? Would it take the million people that we have without a family doctor down to half a million in a certain amount of years? Would it would it uh, speed up uh, access for for cancer treatments and things of that nature or not? Um, so that's always seems to be the missing piece right now with this government is is announce a very expensive program, uh, but refuse to announce any type of of tracking system with it an actual deliverable that they can be held accountable to. And that's, that's at its core. Um, you know, the worry here is that, um, you know, you look at the public sector agreements that we're seeing uh, right now. We know what the wage uh, percentage is. We don't know what all of these uh, moving of people in, in salary grids and everything else are costing the taxpayers. And we've been calling on the government. What is the actual dollar figure of these agreements, not with just the wage percentage? Because a lot of those other adjustments get very, very expensive. And it's not that they're going to change the agreement at this point. It's that the public needs to have that transparency into how this money is being spent because it does have very long-term implications into our ability to do things like other agreements with doctors or specialists or, or uh, you know, uh, neurodiverse children supports and all of those programs um, start to come into play. And, and we need to understand what these long-term liabilities the government's agreeing to are. Do you think that there should be a mechanism, a formal mechanism in place to make that information public? Well, the, the mechanism is already in place. And what it would require is that the, the finance minister would actually uh, agree to release those numbers. And, and like I say, we're talking about what is the actual dollar figure, because ultimately, uh, to your listeners at home right now, there are the taxpayers that are going to actually be taxed in one way or another to fund these programs. And so I think everyone's aware of that, uh, but they would like to know with a, with some level of transparency, um, what is this costing? Does it mean that we could reasonably expect some form of, of tax break in the future uh, once we get through some of the hard parts here of our economy? Or is it that we are locked into this now and, and uh, regardless of what economic growth might happen, 
um, that we need that growth just to simply pay for existing liabilities that have been agreed to by the government. Yeah, I think that's on the minds of a lot of taxpayers since the announcement was made. Peter Millobar, thanks for your time this morning. Great. Thank you. Anytime. This morning, we gained an hour, but adjusting for the hour can disrupt our sleep cycles. We thought, you know what? It's a great time to brush up on our sleep hygiene. So joining me now is Dr. Eric A. Prather, author of a new book called The Sleep Prescription. Hello, Eric. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Okay, before we get into your tips, and some of them in the new book are, I would say, a bit surprising, a bit unconventional. I'm so curious, what is your take on daylight saving time from a psychology and health perspective? Like, should we keep it or end it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think for the uh, from the sleep science community and the circadian science community, we feel fairly strongly that we should end daylight savings and stick uh, to permanent standard time moving forward. Okay. So basically now that I've been vindicated, we'll move on with the interview. (laughs) Eric, it seems we're hearing a lot more about sleep these days, more than previous years. Why is that? I mean, I think there's a a bit of a shift in the kind of collective consciousness around the importance of sleep. It's not just something that we do, you know, when everything else is done, it actually kind of revitalizes us for the next day so we can be our best selves. And I think the science is really beginning to support that in all domains of life, from well-being to health to kind of our relationships. And so it's an exciting time for sleep science. So your new book, The Sleep Prescription, says that good sleep is not just about what happens at night, but also about what we do during the day. So can you say more about that? Yeah, I think a lot of people have the misconception that, you know, we can get a good night's sleep and it, it's just a few minutes before we get in bed. To, but actually there's lots of things you can do during the day to set yourself up for success, whether it's kind of maintaining a stable wake time so that you can set your circadian rhythm, kind of treating yourself well and taking kind of micro breaks throughout the day, uh, not reaching for that extra cup of coffee in the late afternoon, but also making ensuring that you have the transition in the early evening that can really put your body in the right state to allow sleep to come to you. Yeah, so you said in the book, instead of reaching for caffeine, plunge your head in the freezer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that certainly got the most attention. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so, you know, I mean, we're trying to come up with things that might, you know, you know, increase our alertness, but not kind of be in our system for a really long time. And one thing that we know from kind of stress science and, uh, you know, anybody who's done a, a polar plunge uh, knows that you know, cold exposure can actually kind of ramp up your sympathetic nervous system. And, you know, I'm just suggesting that that might be one thing that might be able to get us through kind of our midday doldrums. But, you know, getting outside, getting your blood pumping, kind of brisk walk, any of that kind of thing could also do that. Um, But, you know, if you happen to have a freezer on hand, you might want to try it, but it's not the only solution. (laughs) Okay. Would the equivalent be uh, with using water? Like, could you splash your face with some cold water? Would that wake one up? Right. I mean, right. I mean, it's 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 not kind of rocket science here. Uh, you know, certainly kind of that kind of thing could also uh, be effective. And it's just about kind of trying different things that might kind of increase the novelty that will allow you to kind of reset so that you can uh, go go throughout your day. Yeah. And then you write also that we should carve out time for scheduled worry. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, worries can certainly creep into the night. 
And one way to try to prevent that, and this is something that's done, you know, routinely in our clinic and other clinics around the country, is actually ask people to take time out of their day where they just focus on worrying, right, where they, you know, put it in their schedule. And what that does is it, you know, decreases the likelihood that it's going to crop up in the middle of the night. But also if it does, you can tell yourself, well, look, I've already scheduled this for tomorrow. I don't need to, to kind of deal with this right now. And I think the important thing about that is, you know, we're really not in our best state to conquer any of those problems in the middle of the night anyway. And so by having a place for that in our lives, um, it can relieve some of the distress and allow us to get back to sleep. And then you talk also about how we should declutter our bedroom. What does that have to do with getting better sleep? Yeah, so, you know, you can do all these things that, you know, we know are important for, for our sleep health, but if your room is filled with, um, you know, light and clutter, like, you know, you're working in your bed, any of those kind of things, it, we really want to make the bed kind of a shrine to sleep because the bed itself is actually an important trigger to tell your body that it's time to rest, it's time to sleep. And so the more we can just make it a special place for sleeping, um, the better off we are. You also write about room temperature. Um, for myself, I sleep in 17 degrees and then with a heavy duvet on top, that's um, for you, that's 62 in Fahrenheit. What is, what's the ideal room temperature we should be sleeping in? First of all, thank you for converting it to Fahrenheit because I was frantically trying to figure that out on, on the Google right there. I figured as much. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think because we want our core body temperature to drop um, when we're sleeping, that seems to facilitate better sleep. Um, you know, it seems like the range that seems to work best for humans is somewhere between 60 and 68 uh, Fahrenheit. Um, and so, you know, I think 62 is, is, you know, might be cool for some people, but if you can kind of bundle up with layers, um, you know, that, that seems to be the, the right thing. Certainly when it's too hot, that, that makes it hard for most people to sleep. And so that's, that's the range, 60 to 68. And then we all hear that before bed, we're, we're meant to wind down. Don't go from a hundred to a zero. Uh, you, you got to slow things down. How do you suggest people best do that? Well, I think it's, it's first to kind of be intentional about it, right, to, to kind of set a cutoff time for your life that's like, okay, this is the last email I'm going to do. This is the last work thing. This is, you know, we're transitioning to bedtime. And then it's really about, um, you know, and, and you want to give yourself like an hour to two hours if you can. You know, certainly everybody's lives are busy. But, um, you know, making sure that you have this kind of cut point. And then it's about doing something that's kind of, you know, low arousal but kind of positive. So, that, that, and that seems to be personal to each individual. So it could be like listening to music, reading, um, you know, watching television, anything like that. But something that's relaxing for you, but ensuring that it's part of your routine because those routines are what help tell your body that it's this transition to sleep. And what do you think about background noise, like white noise, something to some ambient sounds to drown out sharp sounds from outside? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that can be, you know, based on the environment for, for some people, yeah, you know, to having, having white noise, anything that can kind of drown out those sounds so that you can fall back asleep or get to sleep is, is a, good, a good thing. I, you know, I, I always caution people that, um, you know, sometimes it, it's about kind of what is your sleep like when you don't have those available, right? And so none of, none of these kind of tr tricks or tactics are necessarily uh, problematic, Except if, you know, what happens if you, you can't have that white noise and you won't be able to sleep all night. And so that's the, that's the kind of uh, 
delicate balance that we uh, walk uh, with respect to our sleep. But, um, you know, in general, those are, you know, great tools, especially if you live in a noisy environment because, you know, kind of outside noise can certainly impact people's sleep. Yeah, I had to, just a personal story. I was staying with a friend in London in spring and she lives in London. She lives in the heart of the city and it's very loud outside. And I sheepishly said to her at nine o'clock, do you mind if I play some white noise when I go to sleep to drown out the outside sound? She's wondering if she's dealing with a toddler. I tell you, I slept like a baby that night. (laughs) Um, Now I have to ask you, Eric, did you read the 760 comments on the New York Times article about your new book? So so as a rule, I typically don't read them. (laughs) You should. Uh, It's entertaining. Yeah. Well, there, there has yeah. So the New York Times. I mean that that title of the article was absolutely very catchy for people. And you know, I think if if individuals didn't read the actual article, um, you know, it would it would ignite kind of some uh, some less than positive comments. But uh, you know, I mean, I think sleep is something that really connects us, right? And 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 I will say, as a psychologist, being able to kind of talk about lots of aspects of mental health, sleep is always a great entry point because it's something we all experience, it's something we all kind of wish was better. Um, and so, you know, my hope is that, you know, some of the things that are in this book will be helpful to get people to sleep back on the right track. Yeah, the, the comments on that article, and you're right, it, it's due in part to the title, it's uh, New York Times Can't Sleep, Try Sticking Your Head in the Freezer. And among the 760 comments on the article, it, it's just, it's just a, a fascinating cornucopia of people's sleep issues and their solutions, really fascinating stuff. Anyway, Dr. Eric A. Prather, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Shall we talk about Meta? Since Facebook became the parent company Meta, it's lost over $650 billion in market value. All this when it had lofty promises of changing the way that we think and live online. Here to walk us through what happened and talk about what Meta's future looks like is Daniel Newman, a writer at Forbes and principal analyst at Futurum Research. Hello, Daniel. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on a Sunday morning. So Meta has these, well, at least it had these grand ideas and backed them up with new staff, uh, projects, restructuring, and it's failing. So what happened? Well, I think the economy changed quite a bit, which is part of what happened. And then I think our willingness to look at the longer horizon is becoming more difficult when you're seeing uh, the market under pressure, stock prices falling, companies are you know failing to deliver to their shareholders, and then at the same time, you're seeing a pressure from other alternative products like TikTok that have come in, and so now Facebook and Meta are seeing pressure in their core business, and then they've got this 10-year kind of nebulous vision, spending billions of dollars to try to deliver what might be the next big thing. But the market, at least at this moment, doesn't even know how to spend money on it. So I think they're creating a lot of confusion. There's a lack of clarity. And like I said, now we're heading into a possible recession. And people are like, is is Meta, is Facebook still this exciting growth company or are they sliding fast? And the latter is what it looks like right now. Yeah, yeah. Meta was uh, toted as the next iteration of the Internet. So do you think that's still happening? Has it just been delayed? Or is Meta looking like uh, an all-out failure that requires a complete pivot? 
Well, I think the one thing about someone like Mark Zuckerberg, and this was true of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, was there was those ebbs and flows, right? We all remember when Steve Jobs was pulled out of his own company because he was so insistent on what the future needed to be that uh, the company couldn't make the money near term. And so I think we're in one of those inflection points where I think Mark Zuckerberg's on the right track about the next iteration of the internet is this more immersive experience. But the real question is how can he get back to kind of managing that core business, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, competing with the pressure of TikTok and of YouTube, of the shorts and, and starting to really deliver to their core business and their audience. And then of course the pressure that Apple has put them under with the uh, privacy they have to get their core business right. I feel like companies like Alphabet and Apple make these bets about the future now, but they don't put so much on the line that it, it puts a risk of their core businesses failing. And I think that's what everyone's looking at is, is, Mark, how are you putting all this on the line and not getting the core business right to make sure you can pay for what you think the future is going to be? Yeah, the core business thing is critical here. You know, you remember that initial intro video of what all the immersive experiences we were going to have showed us, you know, the one that Meta put out in the beginning. Yeah, so that didn't materialize. And then instead, what we ended up seeing is these uh, offshoot small offerings, you know, the head of uh, fashion at Instagram, Eva Chen, posting like a tiny video of her animated avatar moving slowly through a space. It, It was very awkward. So all the tiny project offshoot launches that were happening to show us the potential of Meta have been quite frankly, pathetic compared to that initial video that Meta showed us. Um, So have people kind of forgotten about that potential metaverse? Well, I think the problem was we have a very short horizon as as a society, right? The immediate gratification is he brought this out and said, hey, this is going to take some time. Um, But we don't really think that way as a society and as consumers. You know, we want to know, I want it now. And so... Uh, as consumers, we want it now. As investors, we want the returns to come now. And the bottom line was, I think he was trying to make this hard pivot to say, yes, we're not this old kind of Facebook that attracts, you know, 40, 50-year-old middle-aged people. We've got something cool and on the horizon, we're going to disrupt ourselves. But the problem was, it was never going to happen this fast. Um, first of all, I truly do not believe, Raji, that people are going to wear these heavy headsets. I do think the Oculus acquisition gives them some core technology, but I think people, if you kind of remember Pokemon Go, I keep saying people want to be immersed with technology, but they want to be out in in social. We saw that at the end of the pandemic. Everybody went back to traveling and back to experiences. We don't want to visit an island on a headset. We want to go to the island. Now, when we get there, though, could we have some type of wearable technology that helps us see all the great sites and engage with the with the culture and, and do language translation. These are actual metaverse slash, um, you know, future collaboration technology experiences that can be created. But this idea of us going and hiding in a dark room with our headset on, I think that's a really small part of the population. And I think uh, Meta has to recalibrate and say, how do we get the people to connect and get them out into the world? Because I think that's what we really want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you might be right about that. Last year, Apple announced these uh, big changes to its privacy policy, and they did it in order to give users greater control of their data, also to make it harder for advertisers to sponge every ounce of our data from us. What impact did that did those changes to the privacy policy have on Meta's bottom line, do you think? 
Well, it's been shown it's a multi-billion-dollar impact, and long-term, it's going to continue to have a really uh, difficult. It's going to create a really difficult situation for Meta using its core advertising techniques. We're seeing the shift from, you know, third-party data where, where advertisers could get at their potential con- customers just by going through Facebook. They didn't really need to engage their customers at all. So now there's all this new pressure that these companies are going to have to figure out a way to get more close and more connected with customers, and they're going to have to opt in. So. You know, from a standpoint of Apple, it was a really smart move because it actually gave Apple a lot more power and control. And, you know, Apple's building its services ecosystem, too. So, you know, I still kind of wonder if it was all done, you know, altruistically or if this is kind of like Apple saying, we're going to get more into advertising soon. So let's start to weaken the competition. Having said that, um, you know, Meta and Facebook, that part of its business was one of the most adversely affected by the IDFA, which was the ID for uh, Apple uh, privacy changes now that people can't, these advertisers can't get that prescriptive the ads aren't as good they can't charge as much for them and Raji added all together in this recessionary period we're heading into I mean the economy is getting tough we're seeing what's happening in tech Facebook's horizon to try new things and take these big risks are is going to get shorter if they can't get that core business right yeah and you mentioned there your your take on Apple with privacy policy to me, it sounds a bit cynical. Isn't it also the case that Apple has always been concerned, more concerned with privacy than the other bigwigs and that uh, Apple also sees potential in people choosing Apple products because they care about privacy? You know, Apple's, I'm always very conflicted about Apple as a technology analyst and as a user of their technology their walled garden technology, it's very lucrative for Apple to have you within their walled garden. We all know about iMessage, right? And yeah. iMessage, the idea that we can't possibly connect iMessage to an Android device because it's its not security anymore. They figured that out. But the bottom line is Apple doesn't really want people to be able to iMessage on an Android because that's one of the big reasons people buy iPhones. So I think it's both. I think the company understands there's an important posture right now about caring about people's data. And at least letting people know that, hey, we're thinking about it and we're building a really secure ecosystem. We've all heard that, you know, iOS is supposedly more secure than Android. And I think there's been a lot of data over the years that has shown that. But at the same time, I think people give Apple a pass on some of their other behaviors that can be a little bit uh, self-serving at times. Um, And we've seen it, you know, as they're rolling out their services, as you know, they've gotten in trouble for doing things with battery life during their iOS upgrade. So Apple's not a perfect company, but they tend to have this really great ability to connect with their consumer and build trust. And by the way, that's the exact opposite of how uh, people feel about um, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. Even people that use it, I very rarely anymore seem to hear from anybody. I love Facebook. It's mostly like, (laughs) I use it because my family's there. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say that. Daniel, we'll have to uh, leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your perspective on that for us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.